Well, listeners, if you can't hear it, I'm sick again. This time with RSV, so I've hit the respiratory illness triad just in time to see 2023 ride into the sunset. I also figured you'd want to hear as little of this voice as possible, so I'm going to do a regular episode, and I'll do the wrap-up for 2023 after the interview is over, in case any hardcore fans actually want to hear that. But even if I wasn't feeling great, there's no version of me that wants to be in a hot, sweaty room with strangers telling me what I'm doing wrong. (laughs) Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Nicole Byers. Nicole owns a yoga studio where she specializes in teaching trauma-informed yoga. It's much more about getting back in touch with all of the parts of you that you've numbed over the years with none of the unpleasant sweatbox environments or physical contact with others. I actually think I'm going to try it a bit after having done this interview because I think we all sort of fall out of sync with ourselves over time, even if it's just a tiny bit per week, month, or year. Let's get back in touch with our bodies. Welcome to the show, Nicole Byers. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and and chat with you about yoga, I guess. Yeah, this is going to be really interesting. So (laughs) why don't you kind of give an introduction for yourself of who you are for the audience? Sure. So my name's Nicole. Um, I am from Minnesota. You can probably hear it in the accent. Uh, Grew up here, went to college out in Arizona, ended up with a finance degree, started working in corporate America, found myself really unfulfilled and unhappy in corporate America. Um, I didn't really fit into this box that I felt like I was kind of being put into by my parents and society and things like that. So early on in my um, years of working, I it was mid-20s where I just had, I was really unhappy in my career and I felt a, a sense of like I had no control kind of over my life. And I resorted to an eating disorder. So I was really struggling with anorexia. Um, when you have an eating disorder and you're very restrictive of your food and um, it's it's kind of like a numbing mechanism, like alcoholism or drug addiction or shopping addiction, whatever it is that the eating disorder was a way for me to kind of numb how unhappy I was and how lost I was and not sharing, not sure about what the next direction was for me um, in my mid 20s. So long story short, and there's a reason that this leads me to yoga. I ended up in treatment at a facility where yoga was a big piece to my recovery. And I went to yoga very resistant. I didn't know much about it. In my mind, it was just some slow, annoying practice was was originally how I felt towards it. And so for the first couple of weeks of treatment, when we had to go to yoga, again, I went very resistant. And in treatment with anorexia, there 
it wasn't about the physical practice. And I think a lot of people think about yoga in a very physical sense. It was much more about slowing down to tune in to the present moment. And the way that the teacher had taught the class was very about just kind of coming into your own body, noticing the grass underneath your feet because we were practicing outside, noticing the sun on your skin. And about two weeks into treatment, and we were moving through that exercise of just getting into the present moment by being outside. It was the first time in a very long time that I had actually connected with myself or felt almost like a sense of love towards myself that had been gone for a long time. And so it was in that moment that I felt that, that I felt, I just started to cry because I felt that connection. I felt that love and it only lasted for like 10 seconds, but it was that 10 seconds that I kind of held on to, And I wanted more of that. So got through treatment, fast forward, married two kids later. Um, after starting a family, I decided that I really wanted to explore yoga more. Um, I knew that it was a big instrumental piece in my recovery. So I moved into getting my training and I became a teacher mid thirties, started teaching everywhere and teaching in wrestling rooms and teaching the physical practice and realized really fast as I was looking at how everybody else was running their business that I thought I could do it better, I think. And so I started um, thinking about opening up my own studio. So after a year of teaching, I opened up my first studio that was 10 years ago. Um, and I still own a yoga and bar studio. But what I will say is through the years of my teaching, through the years of being in this industry, I've become much more interested in not the physical practice of yoga, meaning warrior twos, down dogs, headstands, handstands, not as interested in that and much more interested in how can we live yoga off the mat. And that's very interesting because, you know, I'm one of those people that when I think about yoga, I'm like, oh yeah, it's going to be very physical. I think I think of hot yoga where mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, it's going to be a very hot room and we're going to sweat a lot. And we're going to be very active and I'm going to want to nap afterwards. <laughs> And it sounds like that is kind of you steer the opposite direction. Like we're not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. And that's and that's the thing, though, is that is so many people's perception. And I think it's, you know, it's media, it's social media. It's what we see in magazines. That's what we maybe see in movies or what we hear about. And that's what so many people, especially in the Western or in the United States, that's how we associate yoga is hot, sweaty flexible, right? I'm assuming you might have thought that you need to be flexible to do it. Um, and that, that I'm trying to debunk those myths about what yoga really is about and what it was created to be a long, long time ago. And I can see some of that, you know, it's a very like, I, I guess you could take all the tips and tricks and, you know, everything that the, uh, the person in charge is kind of giving you but otherwise, like it's a very isolated event. Usually you're not like, oh, and you'll need three partners to complete this exercise. You're like, no, I'm yeah. over here by myself doing my thing. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a it's a personal practice. And I always like to say that it's a practice, right? There is no goal to be achieved in like a yoga class. And sometimes I think it's easy for people to look at 
but I want to learn how to do that handstand or I want to learn how to put my foot behind my head. And there really is no goal to be achieved in yoga. And if we're trying to achieve a goal, then we're missing the whole, we're missing the whole point of yoga, which really is besides meaning to yoke, everybody's like, well, isn't that what yoga means? It means to yoke. Well, yes, but really the meaning of yoga is now. It's being in the present moment. You could be riding your bike down the street. And if you're really there, like your mind's not taking you to what you're, where you're going to or what's going to happen later on in that day. But if you're really there on your bike, moving the pedals, noticing how your hands feel as you grip the parts of your bike, if you're really present and you're really there, that's doing yoga. So my whole thing is like, I want people to understand that you don't have to be on a yoga mat. You don't have to be flexible. You don't have to even be at a yoga studio to do yoga. You can do it anywhere. You can do it in your home. You can do it on your bike. You can do it when you're walking. If you're present and you're in the moment, that's doing yoga. And when we are present and in the moment, that's when we can really connect with the really simplicity of everything that surrounds us and when we can actually truly connect with ourselves. Well, and walk me through you know, how you do this without being like so focused on the physical aspect. Cause I know like I went jogging last night when I came in and I just try and disassociate from it as much as possible. Cause I'm like, if I think about actively doing it, I'm going to do less of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how do you like walk you through? Yeah. Just like what is, you know, your practice like to try and get people, you know, more focused inward on their moment rather than, you know, just going through physical motions. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, if we're going to take the physical practice out of it for a moment, I always like to talk to people about it. I want to keep it as simple as possible. And how can we bring this concept into our lives? And go well, before I go to, to that, but thinking about your jogging situation, I was just thinking about it. Like if you... If you're really paying attention to how you're feeling and you're just like, oh, that may be uncomfortable and you may not want to feel that. But even if when you're jogging, you just become present to like what's around you, you become you notice the trees, you notice the road, you're listening to your music, maybe you're noticing the sounds that's just kind of bringing yourself into the moment as opposed to like, how does it really feel in your body? But I want to keep it really simple for people. What I suggest, and I, I truly believe that everybody has five minutes. Everybody has five minutes in their day. Everybody can wake up five minutes earlier. But I suggest that when people wake up, they do their normal ritual, whatever that is, if it's brushing their teeth or if it's going to grab a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, but give yourself an extra five to 10 minutes in the morning. I like to come down the stairs. I make my cup of coffee. It's part of my routine. I come and I sit on the couch. And when I sit on the couch, I pay attention to my five senses and this is uh this is just a technique to bring people into the present moment. So in those five minutes, and I'm sitting on the couch, I'm not seated on in a cross-legged position with my fingers, you know, thumb and index finger together, oming or anything like that, right? Like that's what people think meditation is. It doesn't have to be that way. But I'll notice first like the feeling of the warm coffee on my hands and feeling the couch supporting me. So feel, touch, see notice what's around me. I like to look at something that makes me, I don't know, smile like my Christmas tree or a candle that I have lit. Um, Here, what am I hearing around me? 
usually it's my dog breathing or it's literally just silence. What does that even what does that even sound like? Silence. Taste. I'm drinking my coffee just like I am right, right now. I can taste I, the coffee. And then what do we got? Smell, right? So what am I smelling? Is it the candle that I'm burning? What are you smelling? Is it the coffee, the tea, whatever it is? So I really like to guide people into give yourself five minutes in the morning to ground. Basically, that's what you're doing. You're creating a like some grounding, some mindfulness into your day. You're bringing yourself into the present moment by paying attention to your five senses. And here's what will happen by you doing that. And you can't just do it one time. You have to be consistent with a practice like that. Even if you did it for 21 days straight, what you'll start to notice is by you giving yourself five minutes to really ground into the present moment, you'll start to notice maybe things in your day that you normally didn't notice. So for example, you walk into work and you see a bush that you've never noticed before. It's just there. And you're like, wow, has that been there since I've been working here for the last 10 years? But you've just never noticed it because you're always up in your head and you're thinking, thinking, thinking. And so you're not present to your surroundings. But you'll start to notice things, like little things throughout your day, that's just kind of um, that mindfulness will start to sprinkle very subtly into your day. And you'll start to notice things just a little bit more. And the more you experience that, the more you're going to want of that. And that's how it starts. And is it one of those that this kind of helps slow things down a bit? Because we mm-hmm. live like extremely fast paced. So I imagine like take a beat. You're not going anywhere. You're not doing anything like that yeah. helps kind of slow the whole day's roll. Exactly. And I think we live uh, the world that we live in right now. And today it's hard. You know, we are there are distractions with technology, our phones, everywhere. I just um, heard a statistic that doesn't surprise me, but we pick up our phones 144 times in a day. And 80% of people look at their phone within the first 10 minutes of waking up. That that doesn't surprise me. I'm guilty of that too at times, right? Like I'm not some perfect guru over here, you know, like we're human. And then there's 60% of people that actually sleep with their phone in bed. So they they sleep with it under their pillow. So when you think about that and just how connected we are to technology and our phones, we make it really hard on ourselves to kind of disconnect and slow down and and be present. It's just, it's hard to do in the world we live in today. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like we kind of almost intentionally steer into it, right? We're like, I want the fastest, newest technology. I want my internet to be quicker than it's ever been, despite, you know, not being able to notice that gap of you know, load time or whatever. And then, you know, day to day, I know there's a lot of people out there that hate their jobs. They hate what they're doing. And so they're like, if I can get through this day as fast as possible, I'll be fine. And then they wonder where the days go where you're not at work. You're like, well, you trained your brain to just like skip all gap periods, get through the day as fast as possible. Now you have a day you want to enjoy and you can't because you've built a habit to not do that. True. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. And so many people 
so many people do live like that, or they just become very robotic, right? To get through their day. I always bring up the example of, we've all done it where you're in the car and you're driving home and you get home and you're like, how did I get here? You know, because you're just not there, but you know, the route home, that's what you do. And we all can become very robotic in our life, in our days. And what I don't want to do is one day when it's time for me to go and I've lived my life here, I don't want to look back and say, my whole life was just like this blimp. Like I, I was never really here or aware, or I just moved through my life very robotically. Um, yeah. I think it's a big one for a lot of people is like, we're all looking for a way to, you know, get our time back. Yeah. And that's, that's hard to do without, you know, engaging in some form of, you know, mental practice to, to be more grounded. Yeah. It's that, um, mindfulness piece, you know, it's just, how can we be just a little bit more mindful in our day? And, And some of it, you know, I think when we do become a little bit more mindful, for me personally, with that morning practice, because it's also easy when we're so busy and we're always moving and if we're high achievers and always going to the next thing and achieving and things like that, to not not take time to really slow down and appreciate how far you've come and or things that happened in the last 24 hours that made you smile. And so I have a practice because I think, you know, a gratitude practice, I don't know why sometimes I I don't love the word gratitude because I think I hear so many people talking about a gratitude practice. (laughs) What I like to think about it as like, okay, what is something, what are three things when I'm doing my practice in the morning? What are three things that made me smile in the last 24 hours? And the more you can be just a little bit more clear or specific, not not saying things like my kids or my partner or my house. Those are too general. And that for me, it just doesn't give me a, a feeling that I'm kind of looking for. It's a feeling that you want to feel. But if I get a little bit more specific, if I think about in the last 24 hours, you know, it was hearing my son laugh at lunch. It was laying on the floor with my dog and petting him. They're really simple things, but like if you can just get specific too and just take a moment to pause and to to think about a few things that made you smile in the last 24 hours, I don't know, it just kind of brings this good feeling and you can appreciate a little bit more the things that happen around you in your life all the time. It almost seems like you're trying to raise the baseline, right? Like yeah. you're you exist at this neutral state and you're like, well, if I just elevate that a little bit and that's where I always live, I'm a little happier. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, I like to think about that as like a homeostasis, right? Like we all have our own form of a homeostasis of like, where do we operate on a day-to-day level? Some people operate in a very dramatic place. You know, we all know those people that thrive in chaos and it seems like wherever they go, There's a lot of chaos. And a lot of times those people are creating some of that, you know, and that becomes kind of like their homeostasis or, you know, some people, they're those like constantly moving, constantly driving. So they're in more of a stress state. You know, I have a family member that is just like, he's always stressed. Work is always stressed. And I just think if you're always, if your homeostasis is always operating in a state of overwhelm or stress or drama, and energetically, 
you're going to start to attract experiences, people, um, situations that are going to keep you in that homeostasis, like in that stressed place. And the way that we kind of come out of that pattern is by incorporating, and this is my opinion, the mindfulness piece to in an, an awareness um, of self into your life. Sure. And I think if anyone hears that and thinks like, oh, that's not me. I'm stressed, but I don't attract other stressed people. When was the last time you discussed with a coworker or person you know how much you dislike your job or how bad things are? And then you both commiserated over that fact. Like everyone does it. We all do sure. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like if you're always, you know, like, oh gosh, I have some people that are people in my life that I know if you ask them, how are you doing? Oh, you know, just living the dream, you know, that sarcasm. It's just like, well, if you're always projecting that and that's how you really feel, that's just going to be where you are. And I'm not, I'm not a fan of like toxic positivity either. Like, you know, pretending like everything's rose colored glasses and beautiful and wonderful all the time. Absolutely not. But I also think that we all just have to be aware of our behaviors, you know, and um, and if you don't like some of them, well, let's change it. Oh, certainly. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, we had talked a little bit before uh, before recording this to kind of shift gears a little rapidly here mm -hmm. about something called trauma informed yoga. Yeah. And I had never heard this phrase in the entirety of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So. Trauma-informed yoga. So it's something I'm trained in. It's something that I am very passionate about. Trauma-informed yoga is, um, well, first of all, trauma is something that every person has experienced in their life. Now, some people have experienced big T trauma, which is what people talk about. Big tree tra T trauma, you're a veteran, um, sexual abuse. Um, some people have a car accident. Big T trauma, right? And then there's little t trauma, job losses, divorce. Um, we all, the pandemic, what many of us experienced during that, we've all experienced some sort of trauma in our life. And when we have um, unresolved trauma, many of us do, especially though the people that I deal with and the population that I work with, these are people that have more complex trauma. So for example, um, people with PTSD, um, I work in addiction and recovery centers and teach this style of yoga, trauma-informed yoga, domestic abuse shelters, also our veterans. Um, so that, that population of people that have experienced more complex trauma and have higher levels of PTSD and that I have worked with. And in that population, your nervous system is constantly in a state of fight or flight. And so imagine you are constantly being chased by a tiger. So you move throughout your day in that state and your nervous system is in that really high state of fight or flight. And when you live in that state, chronic stress, disease, um, so many, this can kind of um, come about in very many physical aspects, but so, so we understand a little bit more about trauma and what it can do to our nervous system. So my job with yoga and especially trauma-informed yoga in that population of people that have experienced complex trauma 
is to help them come into the present moment by really having them tune into sensations in their body. So for example, somebody that has complex trauma, they many times will dissociate from their body. So for example, one time I was working with a veteran and he was sitting in the chair and he looked down at his legs and he could notice I would have him pick his foot up and then put his foot down. He knew that his leg was moving up and down because he was looking at his leg, but he couldn't feel it. He had dissociated from his body for so long as a numbing mechanism. Um, And so part of my work in teaching trauma-informed yoga is to help people reconnect with physical sensations in their bodies. Because when I raise my foot up, I can feel my quad muscle kind of engage. So it's really starting to get people to notice their body, to notice their muscles working in their body, notice a sensation in the body. And then based on that, okay, how does it feel to lift my foot up and to lift my foot down? From there to make a choice, because many people that have experienced trauma have felt like they were stuck in their situation. There was no way to get out. Think of somebody in a domestic abuse, uh, a violent situation. Many times you can feel very stuck and you have no choice and there is no way to get out. And so that's a very triggering thing for a lot of people. So in a trauma-informed yoga class, we want to really empower the student to make choices that feel supportive in their body. So we're always inviting our students to uh, make choices. It's this idea of personal agency. Um, so let's let's bring ourselves into the present moment and I guide my students into that. Then let's start to notice, let's try and tune into sensations in our body. What does it feel like to do this, to, to raise your leg, to move your shoulder a little bit? And then based on that, I might give you another choice. Maybe you want to extend your leg straight, see how that feels, and then bend your leg again. And then based on that, make a choice. What feels good to you? Is it just bringing your foot up? And bringing your foot down, notice how that feels. Or do you want to extend your leg and then bring your leg back in and then decide which which movement feels better in your body? So present moment experience in a trauma-informed practice, we do present moment experience. We do what we call interoception, which is noticing physical sensations, reconnecting back with the body. And then we create of a safe environment where our students feel like they have personal agency over their body and they can make choices that support their nervous system. And when we do those things, more often than not, we move from a state of fight or flight and we come down and we activate the parasympathetic nervous system and we bring ourselves into a much more relaxed, safe state. Well, and it's, it's one of those that I don't think people consider a lot, right? Like some of the big T trauma stuff where you're saying like, you know, being chased by a tiger 24 seven, you know, I have some very close friends that work in EMS and that is how they wake up. Like every moment that they wake up because they're so used to 24 hour shift where anything can go wrong at any time of the night that every time they wake up, like they are immediately at an 11. You know, mm-hmm. like their their body has just jumped them to that and they like 
a lot of them have had, you know, varying different illnesses and, you know, physical conditions that have popped up just because that's not a great way to live. Mm-mm. But I have to imagine that, like, if I took some of those people as well as, you know, people who are, are going through a domestic violence situation, like they respond very differently in a classroom. Is that hard to kind of, you know, wrangle everybody into the same perception range where you're like, and now we're all going to think about how our body's moving. Like some of you are very yeah. different places yeah. than others right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the, and to be honest with you, the class, so like when I go into the domestic abuse project in Minneapolis, it's a group of maybe 10 women and the class is only like 20 minutes. So it's not a 60 minute class and it's only 20 minutes. And I don't, um, usually most people when I'm done, I haven't run into anybody. People just kind of close their eyes and they just listen to my voice and they kind of feel in their body. Um, and they do whatever feels good feels good to them. Some people, when I've taught, they fall asleep. Like they're so relaxed that they fall asleep sitting up. Um, because it's not like we're in a yoga room with yoga mats. I mean, we're in a room that has no windows and everybody's, some people are sitting on couches. Some people are in a wheelchair. I mean, so there is no standing up. It's all seated. Um, but I haven't run into, um, haven't had any issues, I guess, in a larger group. I, I have never taught beyond 10 people. Um, most people just get into their own zone and close their eyes. So, like I said, some people fall asleep. Some people will get emotional, you know, um, and they have questions about that. You know, what what is this? Why am I crying? Well, trauma, emotions, especially when I'm doing work at the Addiction and Recovery Center, um, they, they are it's held in our body. You know, and so when we are numbing our feelings, we're numbing our emotions, it has to go somewhere and it has to then be released in some sort of way. And so sometimes in a yoga practice or a trauma informed practice, um, people will become emotional. And I always tell people that's a great, that's, that's a really great thing because that means those tears, that emotion, you're releasing um, what your body is ready to release. And that has to be one of those, you know, especially like this is a very isolated experience, right? Like even though you're in a class of 10, like, again, as we've talked about, there's no group activity here. Like you're all in it together, but no one is interacting there. If you see somebody, you know, out in the middle of the class, that's really having that moment where they're like, oh, I am becoming emotional. Is that hard? Like you to go out you can't just like walk out there and you know help that person you just have to like keep leading or or do you kind of start to blend in you know some level of therapy to the situation i don't you know because um i'm i always tell people especially when i do the trauma-informed training is like we are not licensed therapists so we we're not doctors you know we are we are yoga facilitators so if somebody needs to leave a class you just I keep leading, you know, um, and typically if somebody does need to leave a class, there are therapists on site that can then work with that person. So that's how we've handled that in the past. But yeah, like you want to, you wish you could take their pain away. Right. But we can't, right. We can't fix it. It's a process. Yeah. I mean, is it one, you kind of give them, do you give them that room? 
you know, like if you're going to have a very emotional experience, like feel free to just embrace that experience mm-hmm. or do you kind of try to keep them like, I know this could be hard, but you know, when those emotions rise up, like try and still stay in this moment. Don't let yourself wander too far. Yeah. I don't say a ton because I also don't want people to attach to what if that happens to me? Cause some people will, um, they don't want to show any emotion. So that's terrifying for them. And so I will say that I just, before I started class, just allow yourself to, to whatever comes up for you, you know, and, and I will say it's not uncommon for people to feel emotional because I do want to normalize that in a sense. And if that happens, you know, I really encourage you to to stay with it, to be with it. But that's that's all I really say. And and I do not, and I just want to say this, I guess, really quick for your listeners too, is is a lot of people, there's a lot of talk out there about breath work and how great breath work is for the body and for the nervous system. And as that's true for many people, for people that have experienced complex trauma or PTSD, doing breath work, intense breath work, or breathing really deeply can be very triggering for people with, like I said, complex trauma or PTSD. So I really caution people when I teach my trauma-informed classes, I do not cue or tell people to breathe deeply. I tell people or invite people to really just allow themselves to breathe naturally. And if they want to experiment with deepening the breath, they can, but to do what feels most supportive in their body. And I get that. I mean, I don't have it now, but I guess when I was much younger, you know, I tried to do some light meditation and you're like, breathe in. And I'm like, great, I breathed in. And they're like, now continue to breathe out. And I'm like, hey, when do I breathe in again? Because I think I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be anxiety provoking for people, you know, and we don't want that. There's already enough with you know, with your nervous system being all out of whack, we don't want to create more anxiety. So breath work is not always the right thing for certain people. Yeah. Well, and while we're talking about, you know, the ways you can coach people into situations and the things you don't coach, right? Like breath work. I also have this image in my brain and I'm sure it's like an effect of a Hollywood standard. But I, you know, I think about yoga and I'm like, oh yeah. And the person is walking around the room and they're constantly correcting Mm. what you're doing to like, nope, the different way, like move this way. And I'm like, I don't know that I want somebody, you know, physically moving me around, especially if you're talking about like a trauma informed practice. Is that something that you don't do? Yeah, that's such a great question. No, absolutely not. I do not walk around the room. That would be very triggering for anybody. I mean, it's triggering for a lot of people that don't have complex trauma or PTSD because they feel like they're not doing it right. And then they feel the sense of lack. And that's not what yoga is supposed to be about. If anything, it's supposed to really just, it's supposed to empower you to make decisions in your body that feel supportive. So I don't walk around. I don't do hands-on adjustments. Like, you know how some teachers will touch you or turn you in certain ways I don't touch people. I don't touch people even when I teach at my studio. I don't touch people anymore um, because, well, there's just a bunch of reasons why I don't touch people anymore. So that's another thing. But in a trauma-informed class, we want the experience 
between the teacher, meaning myself or the facilitator, and the students that are taking the class, we want it to feel like a more of a shared, authentic experience. So I'm doing the poses with them. A lot of times I have my eyes or, you know, the movements with them. A lot of times I have my eyes closed um, because especially in these situations and teaching the trauma-informed class, if I come in as the teacher, almost like as this dictator or walking around and doing those types of things, I'm a person of power. So I'm a person of power. And so then that can be very triggering for a lot of people that have PTSD and complex trauma. So we want to create more of a shared authentic experience between the teacher and the students. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine like the last thing you're going to want in a domestic abuse circle is going to be someone like walking up and then standing behind you while you're trying to do an uncomfortable thing. Yes. Yes. No. (laughs) And 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 there's language, like there's verbiage that we don't use. Um, I don't talk about the throat. I don't, you know, I would never bring, for example, like, you know, in our training, you don't bring straps into places. Um, There are certain words that you just don't use because over the years of um, trauma-informed yoga being developed and things like that, there's just, there's been a lot of um, great experiences that we've learned that, okay, this is not supportive or helpful when we use these words. And so we really try and be careful about the types of words that we use as well and the props that we would potentially use. Yeah. Yeah. That's very difficult because you don't necessarily know where someone's trauma lies. Yeah. And you're like, if, you know, nine out of 10 have no issue with it, but number 10 starts freaking out, we're going to have a very different class today. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And and it's kind of one of those things though, where it's like, you do the best that you can, right? And you show up every time and you 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 do the best and knowing that it may not resonate with everybody. To go in and to think that you'll never trigger anybody, you know, that's unrealistic, you know? And so the hope is that you you go in and the, you do the best that you can and you create a very safe and um supportive environment and then if it doesn't, you know, if it does trigger somebody, we learn, right? And we also know that, again, it's that's going to happen. Yeah, I can certainly so. see that. And this is, you know, an interesting position that you find yourself in. You have to have moments where there are far more than one class a day. Does that kind of like change the experience for you? The total amount of time that you do yoga in any given day, you get to the end of it and you're like, wow, I've done a lot of yoga today. Um. You know, I don't, I I know my boundaries now, you know, so because I've been doing this for a long time, like in the beginning, I was teaching 18 classes a week. It was not sustainable. I really screwed up my body doing that. Um, But over the years, I've realized, you know, Wednesdays are probably my longer days, but I only, I will, I usually only teach three classes a, a day, but I only do that two days a week. So I also know that when I'm teaching trauma informed yoga, I, I can't, teach them back to back. It takes a lot of just awareness of my own energy and what I'm putting out there and also what I'm taking in because I'm an empath. And so I have to be careful too um, with my own energy. So I definitely have created boundaries around how much I teach. A lot of my time is spent more running the business, but I do, my passion lies in the teaching. 
Well, it's very easy, I think, for the rest of us to think like, oh, a class is 20 minutes. So in an hour, we could get three classes done. We'll just cycle people through. Yeah. Like, we're not doing that today. No, (laughs) no. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't. I don't do that. I only usually would teach one class and a trauma informed class in a day. Well, I mean, this has been very informative and I thank you very much for being here. This has been a great time. Why don't you make sure everyone knows where they can find you if they're looking to find more from you? Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, So people can find me on Instagram at Nick Byers. So it's just N-I-C-B-Y-A-R-S. I also have a website www.nicolebyers.com. On that website, um, I have some free downloadable meditations. So if anybody is interested in dabbling into meditations, um, I have four guided meditations online. And then finally, if anybody is interested in taking yoga classes, um, all of our classes at my studio, thehonestyoga.com. So thehonestyoga.com. They are all live streamed. So if anybody was interested in trying a yoga class, we run about five to six classes a day. You could hop on to um, check out some of our live stream classes. Fantastic. And those will be in the show notes too. For anybody looking for them, you don't have to remember how to spell them or how to look them up. Just drop the show notes down. There's a clickable link. Awesome. All right, Nicole, thank you again for being here so much. This has been fantastic and I appreciate your time immensely. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. This is the first episode of the new year. Hopefully, it's the tip of the inspiration iceberg for those of you planning to better yourselves this year. As promised, the 2023 Just Dumb Enough rankings. Our top 10 episodes or topics were Number 1. Near-Death Experiences Number 2. An Afterlife 3. Reframing Discrimination Number four, psychedelic medicine. Five, dieting correctly. Six, working dogs. Seven, modern caveman brains. Number eight, life in a cult. Number nine, pole dancing. And number 10, the JFK assassination. What a list of glowing recommendations from your fellow audience members if you haven't checked out any of those already. And now the top 10 countries of the last year. Number one, the United States, still under half my total audience, with the champions being Oregon, Texas, New York, California, and Illinois, in that order. Number two, the United Kingdom, led by England and Scotland. Number three, Australia, with Victoria and New South Wales easily taking the top spots. Number four, Canada, with Ontario and British Columbia dominating the others. And number five, Germany, with Bayern and Hessen narrowly claiming victory. Number six, Sweden, with Stockholm and Skane out front. Number seven, New Zealand. Eight, India. Nine, Iran. And ten, Ireland. Congrats to 2023's big winners. Hopefully I'll make it to all these places one day and I'll get to see all of you cool people. Well, I've made it this whole time with only about 30 coughs to edit out, so I'll bail while luck is still on my side. That's it for this week. Have a great first week, a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for another new episode. Until the next episode, pretty please go do all those things that help the show grow. 
rate, review, like, subscribe. Let's see if we can make Just Dumb Enough's biggest year, 2024. If you ever want to reach out to me, remember you can do so at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, and it doesn't change with the new year, stay dumb.